Today we're joined by Susan Goebel. Now, Susan helps different folks in the industry, especially, I guess, medicinal, pharmacological industries in getting products to market. How are you doing today, Susan? Well, hi, Eric. I'm doing quite well. How are you today? Fantastic. And thanks for coming on. Now, I'm a little bit confused. What what exactly... Is your title? Are you a project manager or, or what is it you do? That is a great question. So what I call myself is essentially a coach. I'm a business coach, but I have a very specific focus and that is on bioscience. Now, what is that? What does that mean? Uh, in a lot of cases, people will more likely think of it as pharma, the pharmaceutical industry or the biotech industry. But essentially what I, what I help people do is my clients are those clinicians, those veterinarians or doctors or the academics who go, you know what? I have seen this problem one too many times and I have just had the most amazing aha moment and I know what to do about it. So I'm go- I, I now have this great idea, but I don't know how to bring that idea to market. And so I help those people mm. understand the process. Okay. So then I come up with this idea for whatever widget and I say, well, okay, wh- where, where do I go? You'll be the one to say, okay, have to get it manufactured by this company. You have this regulation that is that kind of what you do? Exactly. Exactly. And so uh, there's so many different facets of the journey from idea to successful commercialization that It really takes that first step of planning and thinking, which is often one of the hardest, before you actually go out and start doing. Okay, but I still own it or or is that a service you offer too, where you can maybe even take control of it? Because I'm a doctor and I have I have a practice, let's say, and I just I have this great idea. I know it'll change the whole world, but I really don't want to deal with all of it. Is that something you help with too? I can help with that too. It wouldn't be me who actually takes over it, but I can help to facilitate what's called the out licensing. And so through my network and my connections, you know, the doctor who has the great idea and the company that has the ability to bring that idea to market, I can put those two together for a successful relationship. And is that something that you often do? Because... I wonder sometimes if people who may have a great idea aren't necessarily the most business adept. They have other superpowers sometimes. They do. And as you already said, with the the example of the doctor, I have some clients who they're doctors, they're academics, they spend all their time doing other things. And so they either hire in the, the experts that they need, or they try to partner with somebody because they have the great idea, but they don't, they know that they don't really have the capability to bring it to market. So if I can just take a moment when you're sitting there and you're watching the evening news, uh, Mm -hmm. this is one thing that was a big learning for me was you see the news and the reporter goes into a lab and they're talking about this amazing discovery, whether it's a small molecule or a new product or a concept that treats cancer, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand until I actually got into the industry 
that that's called basic research. Now, a lot of people with the academic background will understand basic research, meaning I have this idea about this molecule um, and I know that I can apply it to this disease. But in order to go from that news report to successful drug on the market is probably 10 years, probably a billion dollars. And probably out of a hundred of those that you see, only one's going to make it. Now, (laughs) I got to ask one question. Does that mean there's a hundred billion dollars spent for the one that works or is it, it'll die on the path? That means that 99 have died somewhere along the path. So whether it's the preclinical stage when they're doing testing in little beakers and jars and all of a sudden you realize, nope, that idea did not work. It doesn't do what it's intended to do. Or in some cases it's gone into some sort of trial. Nope, that one didn't work. This one over here did though. So let's proceed over here. There's some really cool things and nuances when you're watching the news and you see those great discoveries and you go, hmm, all right, let's watch that one. That's interesting. And in 10 years, let's see if it comes to market. Have there ever been accidental things? What pops to my head is like, if I recall, Viagra was something for um, blood pressure and they wound up having this really crazy side effect. Yeah. and, And I would love to really know how you discovered that side effect. (laughs) because that that's that's quite a that's quite a difference right you know it's the same concept of the story we hear about penicillin and penicillin was uh this guy in a lab and of course he dropped something in um a beaker went away for a few days over the weekend came back and suddenly the bacteria were dead oh wasn't that interesting if i can bring it back to you know i've got 20 years of history with this and One of the best stories that maybe I can tell that will help to paint the picture for those who are listening is about a little bacteria called E. coli 0157. Now, this is a really nasty bug. You only need eight of those to be ingested in order to get sick. So it's pretty nasty. It's pretty virulent. And it can certainly take a very nasty toll in terms of death and destruction in the body. And of course, the, the most vulnerable of us you know, the kids under five or the elderly or those who are immunocompromised, those are the most vulnerable. And so with this particular little bacteria, there was a researcher out in the University of British Columbia, and he, uh, his name is Dr. Brett Findlay, brilliant guy, brilliant scientist, and he's married to a pediatrician. The pediatrician was treating a number of kids who, you know, had been going through kidney failure, because that's one of the things that happens when this bacteria gets in there. And, you know, lamenting to the husband, you know, how sad it was when one of them passed away. The story goes that he was out for a run one morning in Vancouver. And uh, he had an aha moment. He's thinking, well, how can I help treat E. coli 0157 infection in kids? And his aha moment is, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The host species for this is cattle, small ruminants. So so cattle, sheep, and goats, but primarily cattle. Why how does we, it transfer? That's right. So why don't we not treat the kids, but we prevent the, the infection from going from the cattle that it doesn't hurt over to the kids? By vaccinating the cow. Hmm. How, how did it transfer from the cattle to the children elderly? Was it from eating the meat or, or, or dairy products? 
Well, that's a great question. And so it, think of it as a third, a third, a third. One third of those who are infected by E. coli come from food consumption, meat primarily, but also if it gets into water through irrigation, it can actually get into the little cells in the lettuce, for instance. And the amount of washing that you do at home when you bring this stuff will not deal with what's on the inside of the cell. The other third is produce. And the final third is a combination of things. So whether it's water in the environment, whether it's you took your child to a petting zoo or a local fair uh, mm-hmm. and it picked it up that way because unfortunately it's shed out the back end of the animal. So it's it's a fecal oral route, not not the most pleasant conversation to have, of course, but uh, sure. you know, people pick it up on their hands or they ingest it in some fashion. The disease is generated from within the animal itself? So the bacteria live harmlessly in the intestines of the animal, Okay, doesn't cause any illness to them. There's no issues. But when it gets into us, it gets into people, then it creates some pretty nasty effects. Is that kind of similar to that cat virus that makes the rats crazy? Toxoplasmosis. Very interesting. Yes. Toxoplasmosis is a fascinating subject. It's not quite similar in that toxoplasmosis usually doesn't kill you. It can change your behavior so that you, for instance, will take on riskier type behaviors. So for instance, the one of the studies I read on toxoplasmosis was that when they looked at the brains of people who had died in motorcycle accidents compared to those who had died in car accidents, people in motorcycle accidents were more likely to have toxoplasmosis in their system. Oh, I thought that was uh, young men. apparently not very interesting yeah i I was going to blame testosterone but (laughs) i guess i'm wrong now to go back that is sounding like a brilliant insight because it would be difficult to control for the three methods of transfer you're talking about so it sounds like he's saying go to the source and eliminate it at the source and then you don't have to worry about the spread Exactly. And so try to think outside the box. It's a great thought. He managed in his lab to do all of the small work with the beakers, the bench top uh, at a small scale. And then he also managed to go and tested it. Uh, he, he made a, a relationship, a collaboration with another university that had uh, the access to cows to be able to test the vaccine. And it worked. It worked. The people, the pardon me, the people, the animals who were in, injected with this product um, did not shed E. coli 0157 like regular cows did. I'm curious, and I'm, I'm going to jump around a little bit. It's called unstructured. I apologize. Mm-hmm. How would you plan to sell that? Because I'm just thinking in terms of uh, ranchers with the cattle or dairy farmers or whatever. What's their incentive other than being a good Samaritan to buy it and put it into the cattle? Is that something you would have to enforce through legislation or something? Eric, you're brilliant. That right there was the crux of the problem. This particular product, when it did eventually come to market, which was about 10 years later, it no longer had people who were willing to pay for it. At the very beginning, it had the incentive of a disaster in London that happened in the year 2000 uh, that killed seven people or more, depending on how many people you talk to and who your source is, a small town called Walkerton, Ontario. And 5,000 people in this town, 2,000 people got sick because of E. coli 0157. It was in the water supply. And that was world wide news. And so there was a lot of incentive for the farmers to protect themselves and say they're doing everything they can to protect the public that consumes their goods. 
10 years later, Walkerton's a distant memory and things have changed. There's new technologies on the market in meat processing, which of course only deals with one third of the cases. And now people don't have the same level of incentive. So the only way that it would have worked would have been to have it legislated. Some some benefit, some incentive. Wow. <laughs> Leave it to me to rain on that parade. <laughs> no, that's, that's great because that that right there is one of the brilliant pieces. You can get to market, you can regulate it, you can have all the successful trials, all the product development, be able to manufacture it, have it be in more than one country. But at the end of the day, you also need to understand your customer. Now, is that something that you explore at the onset the whole thing of why are we doing this at all? Yes, we can, but why will it work? Will people want it? Exactly. You know, in real estate, they say it's location, location, location. I'd say for bioscience, it's planning, planning, planning. You have to think these things through because it is such a long lifespan, life cycle, I should say, between concept and commercialization. You don't want to have what happened with that particular product be what happens to your product in that the avatar, the client avatar that you think you have that wants it now, 10 years from now, there may be other technologies in play or the market perception of that problem may have changed so that you no longer have the ability to bring it to market. That's interesting. Now, it makes me think of things in the past like um, hand sanitizers and a lot of things like that, which I think are garbage and causing problems. But is that a way a manufacturer might deal with the exact problem I was talking about is to create a panic or a little fear mongering to hopefully sell the result? Some do. You're absolutely right. Now, I would say that with the regulators and the processes that we have in place, and we've seen this most recently with social media, actually, I was, I was talking to a friend the other day. And in the pharmaceutical industry, there's a great deal of regulation surrounding what claims you can make based on the data you have available and how you can market the product, whether it's over the counter, whether it's direct to consumer, whether it's direct to either the veterinarian or the doctor itself, and how you can speak and communicate and what warnings you might need to put on labels. I'm referencing this to social media because in the last four months, I've seen a variety of people who have social media campaigns going, uh, Facebook ad campaigns or, or whatever they are, and I've seen them shut down because now you have challenges with new regulations that these companies are putting into place to protect consumers from manufacturers or people who are making products that are making claims that are wildly not correct. And that is something that the pharmaceutical industry, being heavily regulated, uh, has certainly been dealing with for a lot of years. You know, and I hate to be such, such a cynical person, but it's sort of ironic that they're heavily regulated, but they somehow manage to swing a big club. Mm. And when you say swing a big club, what do you mean by that? Well, it seems like the, I think it's number one or number two in terms of lobbyists, are pharmaceuticals. I know the prison lobby is way up there. And of course you have uh, different lawyers. What about all these cases of what we're seeing lately, like people and insulin, the rate of the charges on the medicine going way up and things like that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or is that way out of your expertise? I used to think 
before I got into the pharmaceutical industry, you know, how dare they? How dare they take the time and make it all greedy and, and charge so much for their medicines? And then I came to understand exactly how much money the company has invested in these various products, not sure. to mention the products that never make it to market. And when you talk about even one small sliver of that, for instance, intellectual property, so patents, mm -hmm. filing and protecting a patent can be upwards of $100,000. Now, these products normally have more than one patent, and they definitely have more than one country, which is 100000 assumed per country. True. It's a lot of money invested over that decade, and they need to be able to recoup some of that. Oh, I agree. It's like a, the old record label conundrum, or even movies, that one blockbuster's paying for the 20 flops, or 50 flops, or 60, whatever. That's right. That's so right. I, I understand that. But there are some very real problems where... They're a single source company and all of a sudden something that was selling for say 50 bucks a pop goes to $2,000 a pop on a dose. And it's in the American market where they can hit the insurers. It seems like for whatever charge they want almost. Now it's interesting that you use that as an example. There are actually rules around that, that talk about the collusion and the antitrust and all of that, that, you know, if that's reported, it gets investigated. And if the company is doing something for price gouging, they are on the hook for that. They're going to be liable. They're going to be sued. So they have to be able to prove their rationale for their pricing strategy to the regulators. Now, in this case, it may not be the drug regulators. It may be more the tax regulators, but they do have mm -hmm. to prove that. And there are rules surrounding how much you can charge it for a drug in one country compared to another country. Bingo, which is my next question. <laughs> yeah, which has always been the challenge for the third world countries who need the drugs but can't afford the drugs. Because if you go into, into as, as a broad example, Africa with a $2 pill that in the U.S. you charge for $100, mm -hmm. now you're getting yourself into hot water again because you're trying to be a nice company to go for Africa. But uh, you need to cover your expenses in order to produce and manufacture and, and inventory and distribute and all of that. And the $2 isn't going to do it, but you still want to be a nice company. So how do you work all of these pieces? And that's where the NGOs and government funding programs come into play. So, okay, uh, maybe we can get it from what we need to be charging in order to cover our costs to what the customer in the third world country can actually afford. Yes. And I think that's what a lot of people are angry about because especially in the States. Now I know you're in Canada, so I don't know to what extent I think it's a little less in Canada. From what I understand, most medications are cheaper there than they are here. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think they're about on par. Uh, they might seem a little cheaper because the currencies are a little different. True. Um, but they, they are for the most part on par. There's a lot of harmonization between Canada and the U S which is nice. Definitely because, and maybe you're sharing some of the burden too. A lot of people feel like they are subsidizing the world. And when they are hit, you know, a middle income retiree, things like that, that, that can be very difficult, especially with something like insulin. Mm. I know it's extremely challenging and different systems afford things differently, right? So in the U.S., you've got to go into all of the different insurers to get approved 
so that you're on that list of, yes, the doctor can prescribe this and this will be covered by this insurance agency. In Canada, it's a different system, but it is still a system that you have to go through. It's just, it's government now. So you have to go through the government bureaucracy. And in our case, we have the money is federally done in terms of how it's allocated for healthcare, but healthcare is actually controlled by the provinces. So there's a lot of arguing that happens between, well, how come federal government, you allowed this, but now it's me, the province that has to pay for it. And I'm sure the same can be said of, of many things in the U.S. as well, federal versus state. Oh, sure. Sure. Including regulations. Like uh, you may be able to sell some product and I'm speaking generalized, some product in Virginia with no problem, but then you go to sell in California and you have higher emission standards. Let's say you're building a car or whatever. So you, you can have more put on you depending on where you are. You are so right. And that will usually come into play when people go, well, where am I going to manufacture this product? You know, is there one state that has uh, nicer regulations for me that I maybe uh, have a different minimum wage or there's different regulations that I have to follow? Um, who, who knows what could possibly go into it? Now, that's something else you do is match up. You're kind of like a, a, a dating coach too, right? <laughs> I've never heard myself <laughs> referred to as that, but that's a great way to put it because I t my clients come to me and they say, I've got this great thought and idea. And I say, well, that's wonderful. Usually it's a three to four month time frame that they're with me. And over the course of that time frame, it's a matter of Okay, so our next step in this process, doctor, is to get you in touch with uh, a regulatory expert or a human resource expert or a patent expert. And so I connect them with the right people in the market. Coach is perfect for that. They have to do all the running on their own, but you can help them. Exactly, exactly. And there's a lot of experience and background uh, that I can assist with and, and recommendations for funding possibilities and, and help guide them down the path. But ultimately, it will need to be them that that does the work. Now this, what you were doing seems to be highly specialized. Like you've really niched down quite a bit. Would that be fair to say? Yes. Yes, it is. You know, it's funny. People, people say in business, well, you always have that one sweet spot, but I've always, I've been very fortunate to uh, have entered this at a time when the company I was working with had three major divisions. It had an animal health division, it had a human health division, and it had what's called the one health division. And the one health division is where you take the products, diseases, where you have the animal world and the human world involved in them. E. coli L157 being a perfect example of that. So you have the, the source is the animal, but the effect is on humans. And so I've been able to be very cross-functional with everything, starting out in the labs to uh, running departments, being project manager in uh, manufacturing, regulatory, intellectual property, contract negotiation, mergers and acquisitions. It's so much fun, frankly. Uh, but people go, well, what's your one area of expertise? I don't know. Well, what's your one region? Well, I've done Canada, US, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and Latin America. Again, I'm not really sure. <laughs> so your, your expertise is really your connector. I was being facetious with a dating coach, but you kind of are, yes. but highly specialized. I had a previous guest on Christopher Lockhead, who's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He wrote the book on category creation. And it sounds like you've almost created this category. The people that I talk to that are consultants for early stage startups, when I talk to them, they are often later in the process. 
So people have already done the basic thought and they have the proof of concept. That's where there's a really wide berth of people who are ready to go for venture capitalists, angel investors, grants, funding, all of that. And they're looking for help with managing that, that company or that area. I am before that. And it looks to me like there really isn't a lot of other people who help with that very initial, I have that thought process and I'm, I'm at early stages. I'm at drawings or I'm, I've, I've done my first run in the lab, but now I don't know what to do. It looks good, but I, I don't want to talk about it yet because I want to protect my intellectual property, but I'm not sure how to do that. And they need a coach to get them that very early planning stage. Yeah, that was the question I had too. Is that something you help with or recommend for them? Because I imagine if I have an idea, first thing I should be doing is researching. Is somebody else doing this? Yes. And that's and that's a great first step. In some cases, that would be a that would be the first step I might recommend. In some cases, I might talk more to the client about their avatar. You know, who is their target market? Because if your market, depending on what you're doing, if you're coming to me as a doctor who's a pediatrician compared to a doctor who's a gerontologist, your markets are going to be vastly different. And so when you go out there and you're doing some research, you need to be focused on a couple of different aspects. And so that would only be one of them. And I might get you doing some thinking time before doing the research itself. Oh, interesting. And I actually had a business coach on recently, Deb Johnstone, do you do some of what she does kind of going back and forth to maybe help them discover the avatar? A little bit. Yes. Yes. Because that is really important. You, you've got to know who you're serving and what benefit they're getting. What What's their pain? What's their need? Uh, the, that I, lis- I listened to that, that podcast yesterday and it was brilliant because she talks a lot about the key elements of language. And I don't deal with that, but I, I loved everything that she had to say. She was really quite brilliant. <laughs> you, you actually reminded me of another interview that's coming out soon, Perry Marshall. He keeps saying, find the bleeding neck. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. I love it. <laughs> and th- before coming up with something you are selling or whatever, you have to find their pain point. And if you can't step on it a little bit. That's right. That's right. And and making sure that you understand and lower the friction, the barrier to entry as well. And and it can be a big one for, for those in, in biotech. And so we also talk a lot about strategy. For example, I had a client who came to me last year and they said, I have this product. I've brought products to to market before. I would really like to take this product, put it in my own company, and I would like to sell it to the following thing. He is a, what they, what they call a key opinion leader or an alpha marketer or a bell cow. I've heard all sorts of different terminology. So in other words, in his industry, in his area, he is a lead opinion maker Mm. and that's great. It would really help to have him on board and to putting all that together. Six months later, he came back and he said, no, you know what? I know myself now I've done, you know, I'd gone away, done some thinking, and uh, this is not at all what I want to do. What I want to do is continue to focus on being a clinician and an academic. Um, So we need to out-license my product. I already have the patents, the IP, I'm paying to manage all of that, but I need somebody to help me get to the right partner. And so then we worked on that. What would happen in that case? Is it where you own your IP? yourself and you um, have a contract with somebody to uh, vend it or I don't know what you'd say manufacture and vend it out and then 
it could run out over time. How does that, how do you um, explore that? So I, I would call that out licensing. So in this case, the doctor owns the intellectual property, the patents that are involved in this, and they have somebody who's a business development expert who goes out to these various companies, they evaluate the landscape, they make the pitch deck, and they connect and they say, hi, uh, company A, um, you're focused in this particular area, let's say it's reproduction, and and I happen to know a doctor, he's got the following really new, neat, novel treatment for infertility, would you be interested in talking further? And from there, it's either a yes or a no. And if it's a yes, you go forward, you sign your non-disclosure agreements. And if it's a good fit for where the company is wanting to go and expand their market share and it's novel enough, then you go and you put together a licensing deal where the doctor has now got a direct relationship with the company. Um, the business development person is the intermediary in some cases or just kind of off to the side helping to do project management to, to move that forward to completion. And then it's owned by the company li or licensed to the company, I should say, not owned. Is that the most common scenario? It's very common. Absolutely. And that's so large companies, I shouldn't say just large companies, small, medium-sized companies do this as well. It's how they increase their product offering and their market share. It makes a lot of sense because I could just imagine, especially on the individual inventor level, and I assume you are dealing with much more small time if you're helping nurture them in the market. You're right. You're you're 100% right on that, Eric. The people that I deal with are usually the ones that have made the idea. So they either are, are very small companies or they're individuals themselves. Now, to throw a negative twist to it, is sometimes is your job sometimes to dissuade people from their idea? Have you ever heard of the leading question? <laughs> <laughs> I, I am not here to dissuade them, but I will certainly make sure that I'm asking questions if I'm seeing red flags so that they can uncover that aha moment. They will not listen to, you know, I shouldn't say they, we as people do not sure. listen to anyone more than ourselves. True. So if I'm going to ask some questions so that they uncover the information, it's up to them to evaluate it. Sometimes it's a good idea and sometimes it's not a good idea. And in the case of it being a bad idea, and let's just say, you know, I can't, I came to come to you with an idea and I'm over the moon. This is the best thing ever. And you see a thousand problems with it. Do you ever just step away? Because your reputation, you know, like uh, let's say I build it up and I'm using your service and it flops and I want to blame you. Yes, I have turned down clients where I see that there's no way I can help them be successful because they're so married to the idea that they have. I don't want them spending their hard-earned cash with me if I know that the outcome, they're not open enough to the process itself. That's not a good fit. That's not, that's not a good relationship to have. Okay. And actually on that note, on a positive side, would you say that most of the time from the onset, everything changes on the way? Like, you know, you have a great general concept and you may be thinking of it in one pattern, but then along the way, it kind of has to shift and mold and tailor into market conditions and finding your avatar and things of that sort. Absolutely. And you ha you can't be so married to every single thing that you have that you're not open to the fact that 
you think you have, and this is actually one, I'm so glad you brought this up. This is one thing when I talk to the people who are business development experts within the corporations who get pitched all the time and they say, oh my God, these guys come to us. They think they've solved a problem. They haven't done any market research at all. And they're not open to the fact that the client that they think they're serving doesn't want the product or doesn't think that it's the same benefit that they do. So you've got to do the research. You've got to understand that marketplace and what pain you're actually solving. Because if you think you're solving the problem that people don't have shoes, who knows? Maybe they live at a beach and they love not having shoes, but maybe the problem you're solving is that their skin was burning because the sand was so hot. Is that in and of itself the problem that you should be looking to solve a problem, not creating a product per se? Yes. And so all of those clinicians that come have a higher success rate, I find, than some of the academics because they're they're day-to-day with uh-huh. the, the patients, whether they're four-legged or two-legged, and they understand this is the a little bit more, this is the problem I'm solving. Whereas an academic tends to come in a little bit more from the, I perceive based on what I'm hearing that this is the problem. That makes so much sense. And it reminds me of some other people I've talked to. The clinician, especially if they're serving people directly, they're hearing the symptoms in people's own words, which they can then provide um, verbiage that matches those words. So people understand it. Yes. Yes. You're so right on that. And they also have the ability to just a little easier be able to do that market research. Uh, Hey, Joe, thanks for coming into my office today. Um, I I understand that you have a problem with this disease. Can you tell me a little more about that? I mean, what a great way to do market research at the same time, if you think you've got the best things in sliced bread to solve that problem. Yeah, good good point. You have a built-in patient pool. And you could also even maybe expand your business in the direction of your product and help reinforce it, if that makes sense. Oh, very much. And I've seen a number of successful physicians do that, where they have niched down and become experts within their own uh, subspecialty, really focused on something in particular, because they found that they had an excellent solution. They did the market research. They were able to bring it to market themselves um, or have that special relationship with a company. It's it's brilliant, really. Yeah, it reminds me of another previous guest, Tyson Franklin. He's a good friend, too. He was a podiatrist, and he bought a milling machine, if I recall. So he not only could prescribe the orthotics, but create them in-house. And I bet that had some really good benefits for him to be able to control the manufacturing, the cost of goods, the delivery time, right? Because when when I went for um, an evaluation, when I was, I, I'm a runner. And so when I ran, started running more than 10 kilometers, uh, I found that I needed to look at orthotics, but it took forever to get them. Oh, I believe it. And if you're a runner, you're injured. Let's just, they go together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, if you've ever looked at or talked to, uh, we have a milk marketing board in Canada, and I know that's highly contested around the world, but I had some interesting conversations with the marketing folks at a national level once, and they they have a slogan here in Canada they use called Got Milk, and it's with a question mm-hmm. mark. Because the biggest- do it do they and so do you oh, know yeah. what's behind that that question i don't recall it's like 30 year old campaign but i don't remember the onset 
and it's brilliant because the biggest pain they were finding their clients had was when they ran out of milk. So do you got milk? You know, you wake oh. up in the morning, you want cereal, you got milk, you want that coffee, you got milk. It is brilliant. And it's two words, easily transferable. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. It's kind of interesting, right? You'd think that you're solving all these wonderful things, right? That, you know, the product itself has some health benefits. It's, it's, uh, you could describe all the features and the benefits, but what is the need that you're really solving for the client that you've got that milk in the fridge always? Well, cool. Now we have some idea of what you do. And to wrap it up, I have one main question. At what point should somebody be calling you? Well, that's a great question. So, I just um, I just launched a new product, if you will, a digital product called the Bioscience Boardroom. The people who come to me for the more one-on-one coaching, the clinicians, the veterinarians, the doctors, the academics, they can reach me one way because they have the idea and most of them also have that proof of concept. They've, they've done something that says, yes, this is going to work. And that's when they reach out to me. But my goal this year is to help 10,000 academics, industry clinicians to be able to understand and gain clarity on that process from a much earlier standpoint. And so for that, um, you know, once you have that aha moment, that would be the time to reach out. Now, where can they do that, Susan? Well, you have show notes. We're going to provide a link through the show notes and they can even book with me for a little bit of private one-on-one time. Okay. And in the interim, if they're out running right now, they can go to susangobel.com or is it CA? Dot CA, yes. Or they can go to the biosciencebordroom.com. Well, fantastic. And thank you so much for coming on. Eric, this was my pleasure. You have amazing guests and you have a wonderful podcast. So thank you for the invite. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money's a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com.